we knew that we were going to try, try and do a Christmas song, right? Yeah. yeah. That wasn't going to be sentimental crap. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we sit down by the fire and discuss our favorite albums song by song. All right, time for the roll call. Rich Bunnell. Amanda Rogers. Ben Marlin. And we have a returning special guest this week. Sean Rogers. Welcome, Sean. Welcome back, Sean. Uh, so Sean is Amanda's husband, our partner, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> husband is good. Yeah. Is it different up there? That. Yeah, I don't know how it works in Canada. So Sean, how you doing? I am doing great. Looking forward to this. Okay, well, now it is time to turn the episode over to this week's host, Amanda. So what album do you got for us, Amanda, and why did you pick it? We're talking about the Pogues today, their album, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. Because sometimes I like to cover albums I love that are not as widely known as I think they should be, like Love Stuff by L. King or What a Terrible World, What a Beautiful World by the Decemberists. And If I Should Fall From Grace With God is definitely in that category. Plus, there is a ton to talk about in here. Some of these songs are among the densest we've ever discussed in all four years of this podcast. And since I never would have even heard of the Pogues, if it weren't for Sean here, it seemed appropriate to enlist him for the episode. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Uh, most of the time, I'm just a happy listener and supporter of the podcast. But when this episode was scheduled, my lovely wife knew that it was one of my favorite albums of all time. And so she graciously invited me on to talk about it. Well, I know that you're an angry listener whenever we talk about Prague, Sean. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Ben, you're in good company here. Okay, Amanda, so what is your personal history with the Pogues? The Pogues are one of those European bands that did make themselves known in Canada to an extent, but as far as I know, never really got to the U.S. much at all. So I never heard of them until I got married and moved to Canada. And one of the major benefits of getting married is you get access to your spouse's music collection so that's when I found out about the Pogues because Sean had the CD and played it a lot. <laughs> and I did go through a phase in my teenage years when I really identified with my Irish heritage and I listened to a ton of Irish folk music, which I still really enjoy. So hearing that musical style mixed in with punk rock was really entertaining for me right off the bat. And Sean, I remember you were listening to this an awful lot the first year or so that we were married. And 15 years later, here we are still crazy about the Pogues. Yeah. I mean, it's been incredible that we've been married for more than 15 years now. But, you know, you're right. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of uh, Celtic and, and Irish folk music. Uh, I am actually of Irish descent. And um, my my parents, my grandparents, they love listening to the Dubliners Clancy Brothers, um, Tommy Maycomb, and so on. And I always like to say there's a bit of a distinction between sort of more authentic, traditional Irish folk music, uh, which I think the Pogues drew on, and the more syrupy, Rosetrilly, Mother McCree type of Faith and Begora uh, <laughs> Irish music. And I don't care too much for the latter, but I've always really, really enjoyed traditional Irish folk music with a good beat and a memorable chorus 
a lot of those songs are songs I remember from my whole childhood and uh, love them now. And so the, the Pogues drawing on that is just, it's just a great segue. So I'm trying to rack my brains for when I first heard of the Pogues. Uh, I'm pretty sure I heard Fairy Tale of New York on the radio as a kid. Uh, I was definitely listening to the Pogues by college. Uh, I can't remember exactly how I picked him up. I think I got a, a bit into the Dropkick Mur Murphys first and then went searching for music like that and got into the Pogues. Uh, but I, I do remember I picked up uh, this CD, uh, this album in college, and I just never looked back. And, and given how uneven some of their di discography is, I've never really explored the band too much beyond this and their other album, uh, Rum, Sodomy, and The Lash. And really, between the two of those albums, I mean, they're so good that I've just never really felt the need to go much further in, into the Pogues than, than those. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell where I'm coming from. All right, Ben, how did you get into the Porgs? <laughs> I've been a Porg head from way back. <laughs> I'm not Irish. I did marry a girl of Irish descent. Uh, but while Denise loves Van Morrison, she actively does not like most Irish music and Several times while I was listening to this album uh, for the episode, she rolled her eyes so loudly that my computer volume actually lowered itself out of embarrassment. <laughs> Sorry, Denise. <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember how I get into the Pogues. It was in the last couple of years. Uh, I definitely never heard them on the radio growing up. But like you talked about, I don't think they were as big a deal in America. Uh but when I heard them, I really liked what they were doing, and I have a lot of affection for their first few albums. This one, the one that uh, Sean talked about in their debut, which I really like as well. And I've even found a little value in their last two albums without Shane McGowan, uh, maybe because the other guys had to step up their game a little bit after he left. I can be ambivalent about traditional Irish music. I like that Sean loves it, and there's a lot going for it, but I'm just I'm not as into it. But the Pogues gave it a punky edge and a ragged, rebellious attitude, and I dig that, as long as I just have to listen and don't have to rebel against anything myself. <laughs> <laughs> and as for me, so I actually don't know anything about the Pogues. In fact, I'm just along for the ride for this one. Uh, the, the only, my only experience with their music is when the song Body of an American is played on HBO's The Wire whenever <laughs> a, a police officer dies, like they play that song at, at their funeral. Oh, yeah. Fifteen minutes later, we had our first taste of whiskey. There was uncles giving lectures on ancient Irish history. The men all started telling jokes, and the women they got frisky. By five o'clock in the evening, every bastard there was pissy. Very well gone away. There's nothing left to say. Farewell to New York City boys, the Boston NPA. He took them out with a well on cloud, and they often heard him say, "I'm a freeborn man of the USA." That's a good song. Does someone die on the wire? <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah, I'm yeah. shocked. <laughs> Drugs are also involved. <laughs> what? Oh, dear. Begora. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I listened to this album this week and enjoyed it a lot. I listened to Rome, Sodomy, and The Lash, and I thought it was good, too. But I can't tell you anything about it. And I'm looking forward to learning just everything there is to know about the Pogues today. Everything. We got you. Okay, so Amanda, tell us all about the Pogues. All about the Pogues. In the Houston Tavern, you screamed there was your shell But I wouldn't give you service, so you kicked the windows out They took you out and turned it straight, kicked you in the brains So you went back then through a bolted door and did it all again And a sick bed of Kurt Cullen will nail and say a prayer And the ghosts are rattling at the door and the devil's in the chair Hey! Hey! 
of the first big popularizers of a genre that's come to be called Celtic punk. I don't think they fully originated the idea of combining traditional Irish and British folk music styles with punk rock, but they sure pushed that idea as far as they could. And I think they were the best known examples of that type of music until the Dropkick Murphys turned up in the late 90s. The Pogues began in 1977 when two young punks named Shane McGowan and Peter Spider Stacy met in the bathroom at a Ramones show in London. They had been playing in various punk bands around London for a while and decided to get together with their pals James Fearnley and Jem Finer to start a new band. They went through a few name changes and settled on Pogue Mahone, an anglicization of an Irish language phrase that means kiss my ass. They were a very unlikely bunch of young punks, given the instruments they played. Shane McGowan, quote-unquote, sang. Spider <laughs> Stacy played the tin whistle. Jem Finer played the banjo. And James Fearnley played the accordion. But that's the thing about punk. It has a lot of room for a lot of different musical styles if you have the right attitude. And the Pogues had plenty of attitude. But you can only get so far without a decent rhythm section, so they brought in bassist Kata Reardon and drummer Andrew Rankin. Well, the Sex Pistols got pretty far without a decent rhythm section, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> or a decent they much did. of anything. And yep. we've pissed off the punk fans in our audience yet again. <laughs> but the Sex Pistols had more attitude <laughs> than true. anybody could ever ask for. And that's what they got by on. So the Pogues released a single called Dark Streets of London, which got some radio play, along with complaints from Irish-speaking BBC listeners regarding their name. So they shortened it from Pogue Mahone to the Pogues before releasing their debut album, Red Roses for Me, and subsequently brought in guitarist Phil Chevron because a guitar seems like an important thing to have in a punk-adjacent band. <laughs> that album got the attention of one Elvis Costello, who absolutely loved their sound and didn't want it to get wrecked by a producer who didn't understand them, so he figured if he wanted this done right, he was going to have to do it himself. And the result of this was the absolutely incredible 1985 album Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash. Well, Jimmy Glide, I'm on again, the pub where I was born. He played it from the night time to the pace of early morn. He served the souls of psychos and the men who had the horn. And they all left very happy in the morn. Jimmy didn't like his place in this world of ours Where the other man brought storm and decks and he had too many pairs So I sad to see the grieving of the people that I'm leaving And he took the road for God knows in the morning We walked into the station in the rain We kissed him as we put him on the train And we sang him a song of times long gone Now we knew that we'd be seeing him again I'm sad to say I must be on my way So buy me bed I'm going far away I'd like to think I'll be returning when I can To the greatest little boozer and to Sally McLennan I have to say that whatever you might think of the music, the, the title of the album alone should get it like a Hall of Fame mention because that's oh, just an amazing name for an album. Yes. <laughs> that is an A-plus album title, regardless absolutely. of anything else you might think of the Pogues. The incredible name of that album came from a remark Winston Churchill supposedly made about the true traditions of the British Navy. And the cover, which is also excellent, is a take on the classic painting The Raft of the Medusa. And there are a few cover songs on the album, either of traditional Irish numbers or by other songwriters, but the majority of the album was written by Shane McGowan and Jem Finer. As a songwriter, McGowan went from zero to 60 insanely fast. 
There are moments of brilliance on Red Roses for me, but his songs on Rum Sodomy and the last show, Actual Genius, which I'm going to talk about in more detail as we go on, because it, it, that continued through If I Should Fall From Grace With God. There was a shakeup in the band after that album, as Elvis Costello loved the Pogues so much that he ran away with their bass player. He and Kata Reardon got married, and she left the band because she was going away on tour with Elvis. So they recruited a new bassist, Daryl Hunt, and while they were at it, also hired Terry Woods, who had previously been in Steel Eye Span and played all the instruments the Pogues could ever want. Now all they needed was a producer, because Elvis Costello wasn't really an option because he wasn't available, and also I think they were all kind of mad at him. In fact, he didn't produce any more albums for anybody after that, because really you can only run away with the bass player once before you get a reputation. <laughs> <laughs> so they called up Steve Lillywhite, who had previously worked with the likes of U2, XTC, and Peter Gabriel, among many others. And that is how all the pieces got into place to be assembled into If I Should Fall From Grace With God. Yeah, Steve Lillywhite was able to work with XTC without running away with Colin Moulding. So they knew that he was safe. <laughs> I'm sure it was hard to resist. <laughs> Seriously. So before we get started on If I Should Fall From Grace With God, we'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscriber, Anne, and all of the rest of you who keep us in business ad-free. So if you've recently bet on a horse called Bottle of Smoke and have some cash to spare, check out patreon.com slash discord pod to see how you can support us and what you'll get in return, including 30 plus bonus episodes. If you pledge at least $2 a month, you'll be the first to know when we start our next compilation series, which should be coming sometime toward the end of the summer. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can help us spread the word about Discord and Rhyme. Tell a friend, tell your favorite record store clerk, link to us on social media, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just wherever you listen, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, etc. And if you just want to say hi, just hit us up on Twitter at DiscordPod or email DiscordPod at gmail.com. We love you all, all of you, and really enjoy hearing from you. And now, on with the show. Let's get started with If I Should Fall From Grace With God with the title track. to the idea of track one as a statement of purpose. And here you go. This is just about as pogues as a song can be in all the best ways. This is a Shane McGowan composition that shows the extent to which he had internalized all the traditional forms. If you had told me this is a cover of a traditional song, I would absolutely believe you. And it also really showcases what good musicians everybody in the band was. And I hope you are all okay with not knowing what the hell any of the lyrics are. Because <laughs> Shane McGowan writes very wordy songs and then mumbles them at extremely high speed. 
So I recommend Googling the lyrics, or if you have the CD, just read along with the lyric sheet, <laughs> which they wisely included. Hmm. And that's worth doing because the words are really good. This particular song is about dying at sea. Uh, the third verse is my favorite. Bury me at sea where no murdered ghost can haunt me. If I rock upon the waves, no corpse can lie upon me. Coming up threes, boys, coming up threes, boys. Let me go down in the mud where the rivers all run dry. It's playing on the idea that ghosts won't cross running water, combined with the notion that a drowning man will bob to the surface three times before going down for good. And the whole song is packed full of references like that. And it, it's always really surprising to me how meaningful these words are when you can't understand hardly any of them just by listening. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, just a fabulous start to a fabulous album. Yeah, I, I would completely agree. This is this is a perfect opener. Uh, album kicks right into high gear from the very first note. It never lets up. It's a really, really high energy album. I mean, this is not something to listen to if you're just wanting to relax or or you're feeling feeling low. I mean, this is something that can really pump you up. Uh, I like to listen to it really, really loudly in the car or at home. Yeah, you do. Um, and this particular song is is a fabulous way to start. It's a pure Shane McGowan song. So uh, Amanda mentioned the lyrics, and I have to agree, like, the quality of the lyrics on this album, regardless of whether they're, you know, uh, you know, a longer or shorter song or a cover, I mean, they are just uniformly excellent. And even the songs that are, are closer to filler have at least one or two images that are unbelievably memorable. Uh, and so as I was writing up the show notes, uh, I'm finding it hard to, to not sound like that skit on Saturday Night Live where Chris Farley interviews uh, Paul McCartney. You know this song? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Remember when you were in the Pogues? <laughs> he might not. <laughs> so, so that spirit, um, you know, I have to say for this, for the opening song in the first verse, the lines, this land was always ours, was the proud land of our fathers. It belongs to us and them, not to any of the others. Is just just a great set of uh, set of lines. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the Irish nationalism and themes that, that come out in this album. But what, 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 a, what a great turn of phrase as far as I'm concerned. And it's also worth pointing out, too, the, the title of the album and the song, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. The whole point, if you know anything about Christian theology, Roman Catholic theology, you can't fall from grace with God. <laughs> but he's kind of playing on that idea and and suggesting that some of the, the layabouts and uh, miscreants that you're going to meet in the songs in this album, they're hovering on the edge of actually falling from grace with God. And I, I just find that such a clever turn of phrase. And what's also pretty interesting is that throughout this album, there's no unified kind of voice of the narrator. These these songs, um, they Shane McGowan and the other lead singers are going to adopt a number of voices. It's got a diversity of narrators and perspectives. You'll meet Irish immigrants, political prisoners, sailors, soldiers, all of them drunks uh, and degenerates. But all of these songs, they just feel so authentic and lived in. Um, I mean, I, I can only really endorse what Amanda said, that... All of these songs, regardless if they're actual, if they're, they're Pogues originals or covers of older Irish songs, they all sound like they've been written uh, hundreds of years ago and just, just covered by the Pogues today. So is this a concept album or does it just have like a loose thematic tie that like runs through the songs? There's a lot of songs about broken, damaged people. 
but yeah. it's I wouldn't call it a concept at all. Just a common thing that they sing about. Yeah, just something that Shane McGowan just tends to write about. Yeah, <laughs> as a broken, damaged person. <laughs> but uh, Ben, what do you think of this song? Yeah, I really like the lyrics that Amanda was quoting, and I did not realize they were in this song. So I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, like I said, I have my thoughts about the the sprightly, authentic instrumental backing, but the band definitely radiates a lot of energy here. And I'll keep coming back to this, but I love how scraggly and ragged and muddy Shane McGowan's vocals are here. Yeah. It's almost like he's been beamed in from a different band or fished out of a gutter just outside the studio. His persona is a total original and while it shouldn't work, I'm always a sucker for it. He adds just the right amount of dark energy, plus a, a catchy minor key hook that, that contrasts really well with the sunny verse melody. You add that to the admittedly energetic music that the Pogues are playing, and it works perfectly. It's a great opener. All right, so I'm going to warn everybody now. I'm about to say a bad word. <laughs> Track two is called Turkish Song of the Damned. The Turks are all right. <laughs> <laughs> the young Turks. <laughs> about is really, really excellent. The Pogues were on tour in Germany, and they happened to read a review in the newspaper of a new single by the punk band The Damned. The single was I Just Can't Be Happy Today, and the B-side was called Turkey Song, and it goes like this. There's a turkey in the house, get him out. Get the turkey out, get him out of the house, get him out. Get turkey out of the house. Get turkey out of the house, get him out. Get the turkey out, get him out. Not feeling the energy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the damned are so delightful and weird. I know. I just learned that song about two weeks ago, and it's been stuck in my head this whole time. <laughs> I kind of love it. This German newspaper, presumably working off a very poor translation, referred to the song as the Turkish song of the damned. <laughs> and... Shane McGowan and Jem Finer correctly realized that was an amazing turn of phrase and made it into a song. That is awesome. Yeah. Isn't it great? Hmm. <laughs> it's. I like how they reverse engineered a song from this weird mistranslated German headline. This is another case where it's really, really worth reading the lyrics. As I have mentioned many times before on this show, I love a good opening line. And this one is Fantastic. I come, old friend, from hell tonight across a rotting sea. Nor the nails of the cross nor the blood of Christ will bring you help this eve. The dead have come to claim a debt from thee. Whoa. Th that just sends chills yeah. up my spine. I love it. The story is a little bit vague, but it seems to be about the sole survivor of a shipwreck in Turkey who is haunted by all his dead crewmates. And something that I didn't notice, I found there's a website, uh, pogatry.com. It's the annotated lyrics of all the Pogue songs. It's really, really useful. They pointed out that this song has a lot of the same images and it follows the same meter as the Rime of the Ancient Mariner. 
That's the, you know, the poem with the albatross. And... Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Yeah, I think the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner has oddly come up about five times on this show so, so far <laughs> in various forms. It gets referenced a lot. I think it might have. It's, it, shockingly, it's a very influential poem. <laughs> the chorus of this song goes, did you keep a watch for the dead man's wind? Did you see the woman with a comb in her hand? I'm not sure what the dead man's wind is. Um, and let, well, I mean, I have an idea, but it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> Our brain went to the same place. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the woman with the comb in her hand is meant to be the Lorelei. Uh, she's the subject of a poem by Heinrich Heine from, 1920, from 1824, in which she sits on a particular rock along the Rhine River in Germany and combs her hair. And her beautiful singing causes shipwrecks. I don't really know how this girl in Germany caused a shipwreck in Turkey, but let's just roll with it. And then at the end, they paste in a version of the traditional Irish song, Lark in the Morning, because why not? This is a fantastic song, and it's a great place to stop and appreciate that the Pogues were not just Shane McGowan. He brought along plenty of punk rock attitude, but all the other guys were just crack musicians. My favorite element of this particular song is James Fernley on the accordion. I mean, you never thought an accordion could play Middle Eastern style music, did you? But it can, or at least James Fernley can. And one of the great aspects of this album is that it's mixed beautifully. The accordion is an instrument that can easily suck all the air out of the room, but throughout the whole album, it's blended. (laughs) (laughs) And throughout this whole album, it's blended perfectly with everything else, so nothing accidentally turns into a polka. It's okay if things accidentally turn into a polka, but I digress. So, Ben, what do you think of the accordion, the greatest instrument in the history of music? We know how you feel about polkas, Rich. Um, (laughs) I actually have things to say about the accordion in a little bit. But I'll stick to this song for now. And I, I really like it. I like the hard edge. It is a typical Irish jigamajig, but it's in a Middle Eastern mode or key or chord or something like that. Um, <laughs> in any case, it sounds different. And to me, the Pogues were at their best when they tried to do something different and new and edgy with old cliches. Yes, the old cliches, they get people dancing and having a good time, but I'm the guy who would move to the town from Footloose if it existed. (laughs) McGowan's hard-edged delivery and macabre lyrics here, they make it something different, something a little scary and even dangerous. If the band behind Michael Flatley started singing about the Turkish song of the damned, he'd clench up in midair and look around nervously and then struggle to maintain his balance. So, Sean, what do you think of Turkish song of the darned? (laughs) Well... So, so I got to say, like, so we're two songs into this album. We've already talked about the Christian theology of grace, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Heinrich Heine, and the accordion. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's worth pointing out that this is a really literary, intelligent album. The lyrics have got a lot of depth in them. You can really pull apart uh, all of the imagery and the sources and um, the allusions. Um, 
you know, this is a smart album, and I don't want to come across as saying that this is for snobs or you need to be really well-read to appreciate this, because as you can probably tell from the clips, this is just a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a fun album, and it never really slows down. But it's great to be able to just read through the lyrics, and and if you go to the website that Amanda mentioned, you can really see that they drew on a really wide range of uh, literary references and poems and styles to assemble these songs, and uh, that just really makes it just all all the better to listen to. That's that's part of the reason why I continue to come back and listen to this album again and again. And yeah, it's worth pointing out this is just a fun, really dark, twisted song. Like it, for me, it just picks straight up from where uh, the title track leaves off and just continues along. It's hard to separate out the two songs in my mind, but it really shows off the virtuosity of the instrumentation. Shane McGowan's delivery just continues to be fantastic. So yeah, this is another standout track for me. From a different perspective, I'm astonishingly poorly read and I still really like this album. So you can appreciate it from all sorts of perspectives. All right, well, let's move on to another song with a bunch of bad words in it if you can understand the lyrics this is bottle of smoke Rich, to help you out, the lyrics to the song are f- sh- f- 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 bottle of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So there's Ben's favorite instrument, the accordion again. <laughs> <laughs> the song is hilarious. It's about betting on a horse called bottle of smoke at 25 to 1 odds and winning. But the subject doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is Shane McGowan forcefully mumbling profanities and occasionally screeching for three minutes over a ridiculously catchy backing track. I especially love the drumming here. Andrew Rankin is terrific, and the drum part sounds like horses running. And I don't have a whole lot to say about this one. It's not profound or meaningful in the least. It's just really, really fun. Yeah, this is the uh, the most incomprehensible song on the album. Like, you're not going to understand any of the lyrics. I've listened to it thousands of times. And, you know, the the what you think you hear and what it, you read on the lyric sheet are, are just two completely different things, except for the curse words. You can definitely make out the curse words. Uh, but yeah, this is a fun song. It's high energy. Um, it's definitely very profane, but then again, Shane McGowan was a very profane person. Um, just, you know, just a few words about him as a person. I'm honestly surprised he's still alive. I think he's around 60 ish now and, um, getting a little serious for a second. He was, uh, was a notorious alcoholic. He was, um, infamous for performing concerts, dead drunk. He'd stumble on stage, um, you know, sing a couple of songs, forget the words, vomit, pass out. 
Uh, apparently, Pogue's concert goers had no idea when they bought tickets whether they get a complete concert or you just hear a couple of songs and then and then that would be it. And so obviously this deeply frustrated the rest of the band, their management and their fans, and it helped contribute to their uneven later albums. Uh, but that being said, Shane McGowan is also a hilarious person and interview subject. Um, he did a, I was looking for a recent interview just to see what he's up to. And I found one uh, from The Guardian last December, December 2021. It really shows a sense of humor. It's a question and answer type interview. And uh, so I'll just quote a couple of the, qu uh, of the uh, questions and his answers. Question, which living person do you most admire and why? Answer, myself. Why not? <laughs> Question, what do you most dislike about your appearance? Answer, I'm starting to get a turkey neck and my face isn't as beautiful as it used to be. And also, apparently, his uh, celebrity crush is Meryl Streep. So there you go. <laughs> well, who could blame him? He was the first in line for Florence Foster Jenkins. <laughs> for anyone who has not seen a picture of Shane McGowan, he wasn't known for having an especially beautiful face. Hmm. Even back in the 70s and 80s. So <laughs> to say it's not as beautiful as it used to be is significant. He's a very distinctive looking man. Let's put it that way. He is. <laughs> so, Ben, what do you think of this beautiful accordion driven song? <laughs> so that accordion, I, I don't get the accordion. Uh, it's to me, it's just a cheesy sound. It's so on the nose, like the people who chose to play the accordion when they were growing up, did they have posters on their wall of Geppetto from Pinocchio? Uh, <laughs> to me, the accordion <laughs> almost always adds a layer of musical context that wasn't necessary. That was already stated by the rest of the instruments. It's the musical equivalent of Jay Leno adding after his joke, because you see, Bill Clinton had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. So that's what I was referring to in the joke. Like, yeah, we, we got it. Same with the accordion line. The music made sense without it. It was fine. Anyway, I like when the pogues are quick and punchy and have an attitude. And Bottle of Smoke is that pogues. So outside of that unfortunate intro, I really like this song. That's a brutal take of the accordion, Ben. I don't know if it'll ever recover as an instrument. It's quite grace and dignity will never be the same. Also, it, it, it took us 98 episodes to get to our first hacky Jay Leno impression. And that, and that wasn't a diss on you, Ben. There are no non-hacky Jay Leno impressions. Okay, well, let's get to the big one. Track four is called Fairy Tale of New York. So happy Christmas This is the centerpiece of the album, and it is 
stunning. Yeah. If you are in North America and there's one Pogues song you know, it's probably this one. I never heard it in the U.S., but it was a big hit in Europe and a medium-sized hit in Canada. And it still gets played every year at Christmas time in the U.K. and the surrounding countries. This is a co-write between Shane McGowan and Jem Finer and was inspired by a novel called A Fairy Tale of New York by Irish-American author James Patrick Donlevy. And an interesting thing about the Pogue songs is how many of them are centered on a particular place and the emotions that that place evokes. Fairy Tale of New York is broadly about new immigrants in New York chasing the American dream and how that sometimes just doesn't work out. The song is spectacular from the very beginning. We couldn't clip the whole intro as it's over a minute long, but it starts with a simple piano intro and the lines, it was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. Amazing opening line. Yeah. If that doesn't set a scene, man. <laughs> that intro serves as a framing device. And then the song flashes back to the beginning of this relationship when both parties were happy and optimistic and newly in love. It doesn't last, though. Right after that first chorus, they have a very ugly fight in which he calls her a slut and she calls him a word that rhymes with maggot. And we'll get into that word choice a little bit more later on. But just in storytelling terms, this is a masterful example of showing rather than telling. These are trashy, dysfunctional people using trashy, dysfunctional language. Their, their lives are difficult and desperate and they're lashing out at each other. And then the bridge happens. I could have been someone. Well, so could anyone. You took my dreams from me when I first found you. I kept them with me, babe. I put them with my own. Can't make it all alone. I built my dreams around you. The people in this song may be dysfunctional and desperate, but they have dreams and goals and feelings and inner lives. And that honestly is the genius of Shane McGowan as a songwriter. He finds the emotional core of an extremely ugly situation and lays it bare for all of us to see. And this is the part of the song where I usually start to cry. <laughs> uh, because in addition to these extremely heartfelt lyrics, the melody here calls back to the intro, only it's more structured now rather than the looser style at the beginning. And Kirsty McCall's voice is all echoey, so it sounds like a memory because we're back in the drunk tank now. He's thinking about how badly they've disappointed each other, even though they had good intentions and he hasn't yet given up hope. And the song isn't even done with us yet. That coda, which continues the same melodic idea as the intro and the bridge, goes on for a full minute, repeating that same little phrase with slight variations, and I would be quite happy for it to last an hour. There's no resolution to this story in the lyrics. The narrative is just carried on instrumentally, 
And it's perfect that way. This is a, a wistful, optimistic, but also sad little melody. And to me, it indicates that this couple is going to keep on trying and keep on disappointing each other. They're not going to make it, but they're not going to give up either. They're just, they'll just carry on repeating the same pattern over and over. And I, I, it's just a brilliant ending to uh, just an incredible story that's contained in such a small space. And now for the technical details of the song. It took a good couple of years to develop and was originally meant to be sung as a duet with Kato Reardon. A demo version of that attempt is available and it's okay. I don't know if I want to hear a version that isn't the version. I know. Feels blasphemous. (laughs) It kind of does, yeah. This is us seeing how the sausage is made. (laughs) I think it's safe to say they hadn't fully figured it out yet. This is clearly a song that needed some time to percolate for Shane McGowan and Jem Finer both, and let's all be thankful they didn't rush it. And let's also be thankful that Cater Reardon left the band before they recorded the song with her. Uh, the incredible voice you hear in her place is Kirsty McCall, who we talked about briefly in one of the Now That's What I Call Music episodes. She was the writer of Tracy Ullman's hit They Don't Know. And she was a British singer and songwriter who happened to be married to Steve Lillywhite at this time. So since Cater Reardon wasn't around anymore, everybody thought, hey, I bet Kirsty could do it. And yep, she sure could. And Kirsty McCall is well worth listening to, by the way. Her career never fully took off while she was alive, but after her extremely untimely death in 2000 at age 41, the public realized how good she really was, and all of her albums are readily available. Yeah, I just listened to the album Kite from 1989, also produced by Steve Lillywhite, because, you know, he was right there. It, it was really good. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Yeah, she's she's great to listen to. A Fairy Tale of New York was released as a single in November 1987, and it almost got to be the Christmas number one that year in the UK. It was kept out of that spot by the Pet Shop Boys cover of Always on My Mind. <laughs> it's made up for lost time since then, though. It still gets heavy airplay every Christmas time, and it's made it back into the top 20 at least 18 times since it was released. And multiple polls in the UK have named it the very best Christmas song. And here's where I argue about whether that's accurate, because it's a song that's set at Christmas, but that doesn't necessarily make it a Christmas song any more than River by Joni Mitchell is a Christmas song or Die Hard is a Christmas movie. But I think there's a stronger argument for Fairy Tale of New York than for those other two. Yippee ki <laughs> Yippee kayak, other buckets. <laughs> there is so much more. I could say about this, like how this is the one song on the album that includes a string arrangement or how this is the best Shane McGowan ever sounded in his whole career or all the lyrical references that pin this to a specific place in time and all the callbacks to traditional Irish songs. But I have gone on for a real long time now and I want to hear what you guys think. So, Ben, you hate the accordion. That means you must hate Christmas, too. What do you think of this song? (laughs) Boy, Christmas. All right. I have a lot about Christmas here. (laughs) Yeah. If this was a Christmas song, wouldn't the NYPD choir be singing a Christmas song uh, on Christmas Eve? Well, because they're fictional, they can sing whatever they want. (laughs) 
Uh, no, th this is a perfect song. I think that's why I had a hard time listening to, to a version, even by the Pogues, that was less than perfect. Uh, this yeah. never becomes any less resonant for me, no matter how much I listen. The music is majestic. Uh, I'm glad they took so long to write it because it was absolutely worth it. It's one of their best melodies and it's played with their usual taste. The harmonies between Shane McGowan and Kirstie McCall are improbably gorgeous. And, and they both inhabit their characters so realistically. And lyrically, there is not a wasted syllable here. You get the whole sweep of their lives, which Amanda described really well, but you also get the vibrant details of what's around them in that exact moment. You listen to this and you can see it all and you can feel that cold night in New York City and it all sparkles, even the sadder parts. And that exchange in the middle that Amanda highlighted, it just breaks my heart. It's so impossibly emotional. These are real people who meant well, but at some point just got run over by life. You don't get too many real people in rock music. You get Billy Mack, who's a detective down in Texas, and he knows just exactly what the facts is, and he makes his living <laughs> off of other people's taxes. But you don't get many real people. But the leads in Fairy Tale of New York are real, and my heart always breaks for them. So, Sean, you're a longtime Pogues fan. That means you must hate this one, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I can't even joke, uh, <laughs> make a joke about this because this is just such an amazing song. I mean, it is, um, it is so good. Uh, you know, I would probably encourage uh, everybody, just regardless of what you think of the Pogues, what you think about Celtic punk, what you might think about Shane McGowan, just go and listen to the song one more time because it is so beautiful. I, I, I completely endorse what Amanda and Ben have already said on it. Um, I do have one pretty clear memory of being in college, listening to this song really, really loud. And a couple of my um, uh, housemates that I was living with who were, who were not fans of this type of music, I remember them actually coming out of their rooms into mine to ask, like, what is this music? This is such a good song. And yeah, it is, um, it is a very beautifully arranged and written song, but it's, I, I really appreciate what Ben had to say about it. it these are real people with a very real heartbreaking story of love and, uh, and conflict. And it's, you know, it's sometimes so, so it's sometimes interesting to be contrarian, look past the obvious choices when you're assessing a band's catalog, but you can't do that with the Pogues. This is their most popular song. It's their best song. It's the best song on the album. I just can't be any more definitive than that. Um, it's not a particularly complicated melody or song structure, but uh, the the instrumentation and the uh, the production is perfect. The strings, wow! Like the yeah. string section <laughs> yeah. on this is so good, and and yeah, I could listen to that coda for hours on end. I have to say though, I think the real standout of this song is the duet between Shane and, and Kirsty. It's as good as anything by uh, Marvin and Tammy, Stevie and Lindsay, any other of the great duetting uh, partners in pop history. Uh, the way uh, that Kirsty McCall swoops into the song with the lines, they've got cars big as bars, they've got rivers of gold. It just gives me goosebumps. There's something about her delivery that's just so good. And 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 while Kate Reardon was a perfectly fine singer, you can tell the difference. They just need that extra bit of magic. Um, I, I love how Shane cuts her off by saying, you're, you're a pretty queen of New York City. And... 
that last verse is just a huge tearjerker. I think it's one of the finest moments in pop music of the last, you know, half century or so. I'll build yeah. my dreams around you. Now, before I hand it back over to Amanda, just a couple of interesting points. Uh, like she mentioned, the NYPD does not, in fact, have a choir. Uh, many police forces in the UK and Canada do. Uh, I understand there's sort of holdovers from that old tradition of, of choral societies uh, in towns and, and other sort of areas. Uh, the song Galway Bay, which I actually know, uh, I remember my grandmother playing it as a kid. Uh, it was written in the 1940s and it was popularized by Bing Crosby. Uh, it was hit among Irish immigrants in particular. Uh, it's not a great song. Like, I've got nothing against Bing Crosby, but you can really feel the sap oozing out of this one. If you ever go across the sea to Ireland Then maybe at the closing of your day You will sit and watch the moon rise over Claddagh and watch the barefoot gossoons at their play. And then, um, you know, obviously, uh, Amanda referenced that Kirsty McColl is no longer with us. She died in a horrifying and infuriating manner. She was snorkeling in Mexico with her family and was run over by a speedboat that ignored all of the warning flags uh, that they had put up. She pushed her teenage kids out of the way at the last second, was hit head on and died instantly. Wow. And then the, the infuriating part uh, was that uh, when the police investigated, it turned out the speedboat belonged to one of the wealthiest families in Mexico. It's heavily implied, if you read the Wikipedia page, that the person who is at the controls, who is an employee of uh, the family, was not, in fact, controlling the boat, but he was sort of put up as the scapegoat. A friendly judge investigated and basically gave him a slap on the wrist. The family had to pay a fine. Uh, it was it was a horrible uh, miscarriage of justice. And, um, you know, for such a magical voice and magical singer to die in such a way, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah, talking about uh, Kirstie's voice, I mean, you're right that Kata Reardon was a perfectly fine singer, but that's as far as it goes. She was perfectly fine. What this song needed was a singer with as much attitude as Shane McGowan, and Kirstie McCall had that. Yeah. But she was also a technically really good singer, in addition to being just just as forceful and full of confidence as anybody. And yeah, as we said, uh, you can't really talk about fairy tale of New York without mentioning language. I mentioned earlier that the second verse has a very ugly word in it, and that ignites controversy just about every year in the countries where this, where this gets played on the radio at Christmas time. As I said, I think from a storytelling perspective, the word makes sense. It's illustrating a specific mindset in a specific person, and it paints a very vivid picture. But there is no denying the fact that it's an ugly and hateful word and very, very hurtful to a lot of people. So various public institutions have gone back and forth on censoring it, either bleeping the word or cutting that verse altogether. And that upsets people for some reason. My stance on it is that the word is valuable to the song. And if you cut that whole verse, then the bridge doesn't carry as much emotional weight. 
But the bottom line is there's an awful lot of people who can't stand hearing that language, and we need to be respectful of that. It doesn't hurt anything to blank out that one word when it's played in public. And if you want to hear the uncensored version, just buy the song and listen to it at home. <laughs> so there you go, the UK. I have solved your problem. So there's no need to bring it up ever again. <laughs> there you go. Brexit was just canceled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, that word is very problematic. Um, you know, it it does totally fit the character and it's true to the world of the song, if that makes any sense. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so cutting the verse, I think, is not the right answer. But you just cannot say that word public in, in 2022. And so I fully endorse uh, blanket or blanking it out or bleeping it in the song uh, as, is, as is appropriate. All right. Well, that was a wonderful song. Definitely worth being second best to the Pet Shop Boys. So track five on this album is called Metropolis. I knew you were going to grab onto that. surface of it Shane McGowan is sort of the star of the show but the Pogues wisely give you a break from him every (laughs) every now and again the instrumentals aren't my favorite part of the Pogues style but I do like them and this one is fun it's also a great spot to talk about Spider Stacy and his penny whistle I played the penny whistle myself for many years just for fun and I can tell you that it's very easy to learn to play and insanely difficult to play well. Correct. <laughs> it's just about the simplest wind, wind instrument you'll ever hope to see. It's just a piece of tin formed into a cylinder with holes cut down one side and a mouthpiece at one end. There's no keys, no valves, no nothing. I could only ever play it in one key because in order to make a half step, you have to just cover half the hole with your finger, and I never could manage to do that reliably. And it's also really finicky in terms of intonation, since it's just a plastic mouthpiece glued to a piece of tin. But Spider Stacy here can play whatever the song calls for, with trills and flourishes and perfect intonation, and this is all mind-blowing to me. And then there's the part where they rip off the James Bond theme for some reason. whether that was intentional or not, but I don't really care. It's just fun and lively, and the horns sound great. I don't even usually like big blaring horns like this, but for some reason, these ones work for me, and it's got that the, the weird clattering sound. I think it's a piano behind it. It's, just, it's all just so noisy and kind of chaotic and big and exciting and fun. That 007 bit right there reminds me of the uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer version of the Peter Gunn theme. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
But Sean, what do you think of Metropolis? You know, um, this is probably a good place to bring up that the this is just a very well sequenced album. Think about yeah. where we are in the album. We've had three really high energy openers, and then the massive emotional tearjerker that is Fairy Tale of New York, and then we just get a break uh, from the vocals, from any of the stories. This is just a fun, jazzy Irish uh, instrumental track. You can really tell how how tight and strongly put together they were in the studio. Um, I love the uh, I love the tin whistle too, and and those horns. The James Bond ish theme is just so much fun. It's it's hard not to smile when you listen to this. But yeah, it's just a it's a great song. I'm gonna come out here with my bias about the Pogues. The Pogues are a tight fiercely talented group of instrumentalists. Uh, They're precise and professional. And I didn't realize how hard it was to play the whistle the way that Spider Stacy does. So I appreciated that explanation. But for me, the, the selling point is Shane McGowan. And it always takes me a while to come around to this with the Pogues and other bands. I see a bunch of guys who have studied and practiced for years to become great on their instruments. And then there's this drunk with no instrumental talent and a gurgly, nearly unmusical voice. And I wonder, why do they even put up with this guy? And then I have to remember every time, like with Jim Morrison and The Doors, and then this is for Rich, like with Michael Hutchins and In Excess, that <laughs> without their front man, these bands are effectively really nice wallpaper that for whatever their talent, no one is going to pay a ton of attention to. So like Morrison, like Hutchins, Shane McGowan, even though he probably can't even beat a tambourine in time, he dares to be interesting and he stands out. He takes risks. He dares to be messy and different. He's barely musical, but his music resonates where, to me at least, his bandmates music, it just impresses. With Shane McGowan, the Pogues are an interesting band. Without him, they're the tightest band you've ever seen back amateur river dancers in a Dublin tourist trap pub on a Thursday night. (laughs) Harsh. Which is my way of saying the instrumentals on this album are pleasant, but they're not what I'm listening for. Oh, well, when I first listened to this album, I have to say like Shane McGowan was the only thing about the Pogues that I knew other than that Elvis Costello was briefly married to Cato Reardon. And uh, like instrumentals like this honestly kind of like expanded my just understanding of what they were. Like obviously Shane McGowan is the center of the band but i don't know like stuff like this makes the entire experience of the pogues feel so much more full to me Mm -hmm. but with that let's go on to track six this is called thousands are sailing did you work upon the railroads did you write the streets of crime were your dollars from the white house were they from the five and time the old songs talk to cheer you And the dust still make you cry Did you count the months and years Or did your teardrops quickly dry I know for things was not to be On a coffin ship I came here And I never even got so far That they could change my name Thousands are sailing across the western ocean to a land of opportunity. The sun will down 
as I mentioned, the most powerful Pogue songs are the ones that have a real sense of place to them, and Thousands Are Sailing is Exhibit A. This is also the densest song in an album full of really dense songs. Every line has multiple layers of meaning and symbolism and emotional heft, and there's no way we'll be able to excavate the whole thing here, but we'll give it our best shot. I honestly had a really hard time setting down my thoughts on this song because... I mean, at a moment's notice, with no preparation whatsoever, somebody could say to me, Amanda, please talk to me about all of the meaning and symbolism in the song Thousands Are Sailing by the Pogues. And an hour later, you'd be begging me to shut up. (laughs) Uh, This is written by uh, Phil Chevron, one of two actual Irishmen in the band. And it sounds like he poured his whole heart into it. And... So, like I said, what I really want to do is go line by line and unpick all the layers of meaning in every single word, but that would get very tiresome for our listeners. So you're just going to have to take my word for it that this is just very lyrically dense. I mean, it's not especially wordy, but each word is chosen with incredible care. And McGowan makes an obvious attempt to sing them clearly or as well as he can, you know, to the best of his abilities. (laughs) The intro is quite long, so we couldn't clip all of it. But the first lines are, The island, it is silent now, but the ghosts still haunt the waves. It's unclear whether the island in question is Ireland itself or Ellis Island, uh, but either way, it introduces the themes of the song beautifully. The whole thing is about loneliness and alienation and hardship and the constant striving for a better chance of a life, all of which were very characteristic of the Irish immigrant experience in America in the late 19th to mid 20th centuries. The lyrics of the song shift perspective a few times, embodying a couple of different characters, and the story jumps around in time a little bit, ends up being like an epic poem contained in about five and a half minutes. Another major aspect of the Irish diaspora is they brought their music with them, as Sean mentioned earlier, and that's brought up in several spots in this song. Right at the beginning, McGowan asks, did the old songs taunt or cheer you, and did they still make you cry? And later on, he sings, In Brendan Behan's footsteps, I danced up and down the street. And of course, there's the repeated refrain, and we'll dance to the music and we'll dance, followed by an extremely poignant instrumental hook that at one point develops into a full reel. My favorite line in the song, and probably on the whole album, honestly, comes toward the end. Where we go, we celebrate the land that makes us refugees. Something I've noticed just on my own is that we North Americans of Irish descent really cling on to that heritage to an occasionally somewhat obnoxious degree. And that line sums it up beautifully and eloquently and sympathetically. That's actually what first really caught my ear and made me pay closer attention to the whole album. You know, I'd enjoyed the sound of it whenever Sean turned it on and I thought Fairy Tale of New York was pretty. But then one day that line caught my attention and made me just sit up and take notice of everything else around it. And 
all of these lyrical ideas are backed up exquisitely by the musical arrangement. Um, this is not a phrase you necessarily hear all that often. I don't know how Ben's going to react to it, but the accordion is gorgeous. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I also talked about beautiful accordions a lot on our Decemberists episode because it's really pretty <laughs> there too. It can be done. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, this whole album is produced and mixed incredibly well. This song is a real standout in that department because I mean the band is full of instruments that can each be incredibly loud and obnoxious, but they're they're blended together into a really beautiful amalgam of sound. But there's only so much dancing about architecture I can really do. So my advice to you all is to just listen to Thousands Are Sailing in full and then listen to it again. And then maybe a few more times and then you'll start to get it. All right, Sean, dance about thousands are sailing. This is a pretty good song, but as an encapsulation of the Irish immigrant experience in America, it is no 1992's Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman masterpiece far and away. Let's just say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, uh, joking aside, uh, this is another fabulous, fabulous song. Uh, it, it, Fairy Tale of New York edges it out for best song on the album, but this is a close second. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amanda mentioned, um, you know, this was this was Phil Chevron's masterpiece. It was played at his funeral, uh, wow. and I yeah. can think of no greater tribute to a song than than having it play at the funeral of the songwriter. Um, it is just an epic song. Um, that's the best way that you can describe it. It's an epic. Uh, every line is majestic. Um, the 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 arrangement is fantastic. Uh, every single line of this song. You, you remember how I said at the beginning that that I I'm trying so hard to avoid just quoting lines from the songs. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this one you can quote every single line, and it is yeah. interesting, memorable. I really really love the line. Um, you know, we, we we walked up Broadway like the first man on the moon. Uh, did your dollars come from the White House or from the five and dime? Um, there's just so many great lines in this song. It, I mean, it really is a very well-written song and a wonderful picture of the uh, Irish immigrant experience. Um, just what what a fantastic song this is. Ben, what do you think of Come Sail Away? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add that at my funeral, I want you all to play my Richard Thompson episode of Discord and Rhyme every single minute of it. <laughs> And I don't want a goddamn word spoken until the closing credits are over. So what you all talked about, which I loved, I loved all your thoughts on this song. And I I don't know a ton about the Irish experience uh, and the the diaspora, 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 or the diaspora. Uh, But it made me think of the book Tune In by Mark Lewison, which I know Amanda is also a big fan of. Um, It's the first volume of his Beatles biography. And one of the questions that Mark tackles is, why did a rock and roll scene spring up in Liverpool, of all places, when there was nothing comparable, even in London or New York City? And what he implies is that Liverpool is unique because of its large population of Irish immigrants. I was thinking about that, too, actually. Yeah. When I was writing my notes for this. Music's a bigger deal in Liverpool than it is in, I guess, the stodgier places of the world with less Irish people. And that even trickled down, you know, to the Beatles, at least three of whom I believe have Irish roots. Uh, As for this song, like I said, I I loved all your take on it. 
it sticks with me less. It's a very classy song. I think the chorus is a little forced and it's over long, but it's pleasant. Um, and I like the verse melody and I really like how the music gets more and more intense towards the fade. I wish I loved it as much as you guys do. And, and I definitely have appreciated your insight into it. Yeah. And it's a shame that it only hit number two behind opportunities. Let's make lots of money by the pet shop boys. <laughs> no, it, it didn't actually do that. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's move on to track seven. This is called South Australia. a real headbanger. <laughs> it really is, actually. <laughs> In South Australia, I was born. Cave away, Holloway. In South Australia, around Cape Horn. Well, I'm from South Australia. The folks sure do like their sea shanties. <laughs> this delightful little number is sung by Terry Woods, whose voice has the same kind of rasp as Shane McGowan's, but is much more flexible. And I think Shane would have done fine with this, but Terry is a, a, a welcome respite, let's say. South Australia is a work song of unknown origin. It dates back to about the late 1800s, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of recordings of it. I listened to a whole bunch of them to compare and I can tell you this is hands down the best one. Great job, Pogues. Yeah. If you're looking for a more traditional form, then the Clancy Brothers probably did the best version of that. In South Australia, I was born. Heave away, haul away. In South Australia, round Cape Horn, we're bound for South Australia. But the Pogues turned it into a party. <laughs> what makes these old work songs so catchy and enduring is they're very rhythmic and that's on purpose because say you got a bunch of men all rowing a ship you want everybody pulling on the oars at the same time and what better way to do that than by singing an extremely rhythmic song so andrew rankin is just wailing on the drums only they have sped up the tempo from the older versions so instead of rowing a ship we are dancing a hornpipe which is much more fun <laughs> Then in the middle of the song, you get some very characteristic screeching to keep you going, and then the entire second half is instrumental. It is just nonstop catchy fun. So, Ben, what do you think of South Australia? Is it great or does it deserve a booting? <laughs> um, I like these rowdy pub sing-alongs and the Pogues do them really well. I, I always miss Shane McGowan when he's not there. Uh, when he's not there, I, I find myself thinking, where's Shane McGowan? I wish he was here. Here we go. Uh, but <laughs> We're just Simpsons reference chaining right now at this point. <laughs> but... 
Admittedly, the song doesn't suffer for his absence because it's such a blast the way it is. Yeah, this is a real headbanger of a song. If you want like just a good straight example of how traditional Irish music could be adapted to a punk sensibility, this is a good example. Uh, it is just nonstop, rhythmic. It's fun. You could tell the band's barely hanging on uh, to the song from their fingernails. And if you pay really close attention, at the second the song ends, somebody says shit <laughs> under their breath. Yeah. Which I always like those types of uh, um, happy little accidents that get left into this, these songs. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably bring up at this point the, um, the different versions of this album that are out there. Uh, we're following uh, the CD version, uh, which is the version that I first bought and, and kind of spent most of my time listening to the CD version actually includes two songs that weren't on the original LP release. So this song and the battle March medley instrumental that's later in the album. Um, I bring up, you know, this right now because uh, the Spotify version of this, and I assume the version that's on the other streaming services, they follow the LP track listing, which has this song and battle March medley uh, relegated to the bonus tracks at the end and that's a real shame because this and the next song fiesta is a one-two punch of pure fun in the middle of some very serious tracks you know i i also really appreciate in these old folk songs the fact that they name specific people the fact that his lost love is named miss nancy blair i i really really like yeah. that uh although if you listen to one of the full versions of the songs it's heavily implied that nancy blair is uh, not employed in a very respectable profession. <laughs> but yeah, this this song's a ton of fun. And and it's another one that I remember. Uh, I listened to the, I think it was the Dublin or the Clancy Brothers version growing up. Nancy's a podcaster. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the world's oldest profession. That's right. <laughs> I liked, because uh, I didn't realize uh, until we started prepping for this, that this was uh, only on the initial CD release. It wasn't on the LP or the cassette. And I thought that was an interesting way of, cause, you know, there was that weird sort of in-between period where bands were looking forward to the CD era and like trying to cram as many songs onto an album as they could. So I, I kind of like that these guys, instead of going the Mutt Lang, Def Leppard route, they left the, you know, the LP version where there's a limited amount of space. They, they kept that shorter, but, you know, made sure to take advantage of the extra room that was on the CD. It's, it's a really good example of working with the format. Okay, well, let's get to the second punch in that one-two punch of fun. This is Fiesta.
song is surprisingly complicated. It came about after the band spent some time in Almeria, Spain, appearing in a movie called Straight to Hell that also featured Elvis Costello and Joe Strummer and Courtney Love, a bunch of other unexpected names. We tried to watch it last night. It's a really bonkers attempt at a spoof of a Western but it's real bad. We gave up after about 20 minutes. Well, and, and I think it's worth pointing out that it's so bad that we decided to go back to what we were in the middle of watching, which is a the new Netflix documentary about Warren Jeffs and the Fundamentals Church of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> oh, so, you know, if we were unable to be dissuaded from doing that, this is not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, the Pokes happened to be there in Almeria during the annual Almeria Festival, which is apparently a week-long party. And this whole experience all lodged in Jem Finer's head, and it came out as this raucous party song. But here's the surprising and confusing part, because remember how I said the accordion was handled carefully so nothing accidentally turned into a polka? Well, this one deliberately turns into a polka. Is that melody after the chorus is lifted from the Lichtensteiner polka by Edmund Ketcher and Rudy Lint. Holy sh! You're right. It's a slippery slope when you let that accordion in there. <laughs> a slippery slope to greatness. <laughs> in later releases, this song is partly credited to them, rightfully so. So the song becomes this hilarious Spanish flamenco oompa thing. And the lyrics are absolute nonsense. It's just a strange description of a party with Spanish or sometimes Italian words dropped in for flavor. The final verse is apparently based on a poem called El Emplazado or The Marked Man by Federico Garcia Lorca. But it's completely mangled to the point where it's really just a bunch of random Spanish and Italian words strung together nonsensically and mispronounced. <laughs> there is an Easter egg in that verse, though. Y Costello, el rey de la América, y suntuoso Cato Reardon. Costello, the king of America, and the sumptuous Cato Reardon. It is hard to tell <laughs> what spirit this name check is made in. But it's referencing Elvis Costello's album, King of America, which came out in 1986, shortly after he married the Pogues bassist, Cato Reardon. But for all that, I don't actually like the song all that much. I find, it, I find it overbearing and a little annoying, but I know Sean is pretty crazy about it. So why don't you tell us why, Sean? Well, I got to say that the majority of the reason why I like this song is the yelling, I, yeah. I don't know what it is about the Pogues. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys found this out in the in the research you did, but the, the when the Pogues uh, yell during the songs, it's fantastic. Like it's real banshee wailing and yelling. They are excellent just, screamers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like eighty five percent of Pogue songs have somebody screeching at some point. Oh yeah, but it always works. And so the way that this song starts off with the the saxophone and the yelling, I love it. And and yeah, it's this is definitely an over the top, crazy madhouse of a song. Uh, I just like the vibe. It is so much fun. The mishmash of Spanish and Italian uh, words and the the scene that gets uh, that gets painted is just so much fun. Um, I did actually put it on our wedding CDs because, of course, yep. we had a wedding mix CD. And so I yep. really appreciate Amanda's patience and tolerance for my love of this song. And once again, <laughs> you know, 
the, 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 the rambling boys of pleasure and the ladies of easy leisure is just a wonderful uh, word picture in the chorus. I like it too. And I, I think that's because it doesn't really fit into in my preconceived notions of what the Pogue sounded like. Like this was like complete surprise to me. It also kind of sounds like a ska song to me. Yeah, a little like, bit. Yeah. Like, and, I, and I think that that's just the combination of like the polka, like oompa oompa rhythm and the horns, like both of those kind of like conjure up a ska like atmosphere to me. But yeah, just those those things combined together make me enjoy it. One of the defining aspects of Irish traditional songs is where the beat falls. There's often the emphasis on the offbeat rather than on the downbeat. And that's also something that's a defining part of ska. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and that that's something I've, I don't think they're related in any way. It's just a, a commonality of those two traditions. Anyway, Ben, what do you think of this one? I'm on team Sean here. <laughs> uh, I, I, while respecting Amanda's take on it uh, and, and the insight she brought. <laughs> but <laughs> Thanks, dear. <laughs> no, I, I love this one. It, it's not deep but it's fun. And I like when the band combines their Irish thing with other things and kind of stretches <laughs> beyond their baseline. Um, they're all doing what they do best. I mean, they're great instrumentalists and McGowan integrates into the band's sound here more than usual. Uh, he's partying along with them instead of existing in his own morose, if really compelling world on top of the peppy music. And I like the catchy chorus. And I'll go back to what Amanda said about how these songs sound like they've been around forever. I mean, this one, if you told me that this was a pub sing along from the 1700s, I would believe it. Um, and, and that's a compliment. So the, the energy here is contagious. I, I, I just really like this one. All right. The next song is three songs. So <laughs> track nine is a medley of The Recruiting Sergeant, The Rocky Road to Dublin and The Galway Races. Surprisingly not written by Paul McCartney. <laughs> Come rain or hail or wind or snow I'm not going out to Flanders So let's fight in the double Until we don't let your sergeants and your commanders go Let Englishmen fight English wars It's nearly time to start it all We salute the sergeant a very good night There and then we parted Oh! This is three traditional Irish songs arranged and stuck together by Terry Woods, the other member of the band besides Phil Chevron, who had been born in Ireland. He was an original member of Steel Eye Span, although he left after their first album and then released several albums as a duet with his wife before the Pogues picked him up. And Steel Eye Span has come up probably half a dozen times by now on this podcast, usually by our co-host Phil, and I have yet to actually listen to them, so maybe this will be the kick in the pants that I need. The first song in the medley, The Recruiting Sergeant, is sung as a duet between Terry Woods and Shane McGowan and is really good. Those two sound great together. 
As usual, it's impossible to understand the lyrics, but it's about a young man going about his business and being pressed into the British Army by an aggressive sergeant, which was a reasonably common experience for a while there. This specifically refers to World War I, but the British famously spent a very long time basically kidnapping people and forcing them to serve in the military. Uh, if you ever watch Barry Lyndon by uh, Stanley Kubrick, that's exactly what happens in the movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The instrumental part there in the middle is the Rocky Road to Dublin, which dates back to the 1800s. And it does have words, but it's often performed instrumentally, as it is here. And then finally, we have the Galway Races, which takes up the majority of the track's running time. It's been recorded a million times, notably by the Clancy Brothers, the Dubliners, and the Chieftains. And again, this is my favorite version. The Pogues put so much life into these songs that had sometimes gotten a little dusty with age. What makes this arrangement brilliant is that all three tracks are in jig time. If I'm hearing this right, I think the whole thing is in 9-8, and they altered the chords just enough so that it sounds like it's all one song. Everything blends together just perfectly. Ben, what do you think of this medley? I have limited patience for, for this old-timey folk music. Uh, a lot of English musicians in the 60s loved this, like Richard Thompson. Um, in my episode mm -hmm. about him, I talked about how he frequently came back to these old jigs despite being one of the more literate songwriters and hard-hitting guitarists in rock history, and how I really like him kind of despite his fascination for the old-timey stuff. I, I would argue that in Richard Thompson's case, he draws from those older forms because he's such a literate and knowledgeable hmm. musician, and he, al he always does interesting things with them. And you're right that he had plenty of fabulous original ideas as well, but I don't know, I think it, that vast knowledge you know, so obviously informing what modern musicians do is, I find it really, really interesting. I'm willing to believe he was on to something instead of it being this big blind spot in in his musicality that, that he had a method for, for his madness. And then I just don't love that music as much as he did. Famous hack Richard Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> the Pogues definitely play this one fiercely and with their usual precision and verb, and it never gets boring throughout, and, and I like that. And I always like World War I as the topic for a song, and I always have room for some defiance against the hated British. Uh, and plus, the last section, that <laughs> sing-along, it sounds like it was written just for Shane McGowan's snarl. But for me, there, there's a low ceiling for this kind of music. It's I don't find it that interesting. All right, Sean, break our tie. What do you think of this medley? I, I, I don't totally disagree with Ben that, you know, for, for what it is, it's pretty good. But it's when it's on the same album as Fairy Tale of New York and Thousands Are Sailing, you could take it or leave it. Um, I, I do like uh, this is the one song where. I wish Shane McGowan's vocals were a little clearer because the recruiting sergeant section is actually a really interesting and tragic song. But mm -hmm. the way that that he mumbles his parts, it's kind of hard to understand what's actually happening. But uh, Amanda's right. It's about um, a Irishman getting pressed into or negotiating with a British sergeant who's trying to get him to go to Flanders where the, trench, uh, the trenches are so nice and warm and the sandbags are so piled so high that the, the drafts of winter won't come in. Um, this is definitely a, a song where the, uh, the Pogues uh, get political and some of that punk sensibility comes through. The, um, it's worth pointing out that uh, for American audiences that even today, 
The First World War is a much bigger deal in the UK and the former countries of the British Empire than it would be in the United States, simply because, uh, you know, the, the they experienced the full horror of the war as opposed mm-hmm. to just the, the one year or so that the US was involved. I think there are maybe out of all of, I read somewhere and, and feel free to fact check me, but uh, I think there are only two or three towns in the entire United Kingdom that do not have a World War One memorial in them. That um, so it was a very intense conflict, and so y- you can feel some of that passion in this song. The Irish were very focused on freeing themselves from the empire. There's reference to fighting down in Dublin City, which would have been a reference to the Easter Rebellion that took place during the First World War. Um, so obviously, just a really fascinating song. And the Galway Oasis, uh, again, this is a, a traditional Irish song. I, I listened to the the Clancy Brothers growing up, and uh, th- this version sped up and, and you know, pogified, I guess you could call it, but it's <laughs> a ton of fun. I always liked how uh, they talk about all the different diverse denominations in Ireland, the Catholics, the Protestants, the Jews, and the Presbyterians. It's glad to see that there's no animosity at the races. Uh, and I have no idea why it takes place on August 17th. I, I can't find any particular holiday or maybe it was just a nice uh, uh, summer uh, weekend afternoon. I think mm-hmm. it's just a pleasant combination of sounds to yeah, sing. Probably. The 17th of August. It just it's it's fun to say and it's fun to hear. OK, so the next song isn't quite a medley. It's just two songs stuck together. This is Streets of Sorrow slash Birmingham Six. So farewell, you streets of sorrow And farewell, you streets of pain No, I'll not return to feel more sorrow Nor to see more young men slain said this is two songs stuck together the first one is written and sung by terry woods who was a very valuable addition to the pogues and the second is by shane mcgowan we clipped the end of the first song in the beginning of the second so you could hear the transition sean has more information on the subject matter but streets of sorrow is broadly about the troubles in ireland with capital t while birmingham six addresses a specific incident and given the seriousness and the importance of the subject matter, I feel kind of guilty that I don't like this track very much. <laughs> I think because the rest of the album is so energetic, something as calm and languid as this one is, at least the first half of it, ends up sounding dull. 
And these aren't bad songs at all. They just don't appeal to me much on a sonic level. And as usual with Shane McGowan, you can't understand what he's saying anyway. So if you don't have, if it doesn't sound good and interesting to make me want to try to figure out what he's talking about, there's just nothing to grab onto. All right, Sean, decipher Shane McGowan's lyrics for us. What's this song about? Well, so so there are two songs here, obviously. The first one is about Michael Collins, who was the... Um, one of the really the the key figures in the Irish Revolution that took place in the First World War that uh, freed the majority of Ireland from English control. And uh, he was actually assassinated in 1922. Uh, he had, uh, my understanding is that he had made a treaty with the English and certain groups within the Irish Free State that eventually evolved into the IRA. Uh, disagreed with that, and he was killed in an ambush, uh, in, uh, you know, as retaliation for that. And then the second song, the, uh, the Birmingham Six, references um, six men in Birmingham and Guildford, there's four. Um, these were Irish prisoners who were arrested and sentenced to life sentences for allegedly planting bombs in two Birmingham pubs which exploded and killed 21 people on November 21st, 1974. These six men were picked up on the way to the funeral of a provisional IRA member that they knew. And like the song said, they were just Irish in the wrong place and at the wrong time. Unfortunately, if you're familiar with miscarriages of justice, you can probably fill in the blanks. They had nothing to do with the bombings, but due to some circumstantial evidence, they were charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to severe pr prison terms. They appealed, and it slowly came out that there had been fabrication of evidence. The police had just wanted to grab the first suspicious people they could, and they had been unjustly charged and imprisoned. Eventually, they were released and awarded compensation for, uh, uh, for their trials. And so it's obviously not the place of a music podcast to comment on the Irish Troubles and the thousand-year relationship between Ireland and, and Britain, uh, except to say it was a very complex and tragic conflict. You can definitely feel the passion and outrage in this song. Um, I don't completely disagree with Amanda's take on you know, the strength of the song versus the others on the album, but it's, uh, it's definitely just a really... Uh, a fierce song. Uh, you can you can just feel the outrage seeping out of every line of the song. Um, you know, for my part, as a as an older millennial, the troubles in Ireland were something that was always in the background growing up. Oh yeah, there's car bombs and shootings and riots in Ireland. The Protestants hate the Catholics, and it's this horrible, uh, tragic conflict that just will always be there. And it's kind of incredible to realize that that large-scale violence has been pretty much gone for 25 years, ever since the Good Friday Agreement in the 1990s, uh, and that in some ways this is part of the past. But whatever your position on the politics of the song, um, I will say the one moment of true genius in is the line, may the judged be the judges when they rot down in hell. What a badass lyric that is. Yeah. 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 All right, Ben, what do you think of this song or songs or whatever you want to call it? The, the subject matter is fascinating and it's absolutely worth writing a protest song about. And I'm glad they tried. I've been a nut for learning about the troubles for years and years. I've, I've read a number of books on the subject and definitely every Wikipedia page that's available on the topic 
And one of my all-time favorite memories is taking a walking tour of Belfast uh, that was led by a former member of the IRA. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Oh, it's awesome. I, I don't know if he's still around. It's been a while, but it's uh, it's a fascinating tour. And I just learned, I recently learned about uh, the bombings in Birmingham uh, on an episode of an excellent podcast called The Troubles Podcast. So I have a little bit of background. But musically, I agree with both of you here. And uh, I'm sorry for depriving you of the opportunity to go all Ralph and Alice on each other again. <laughs> um, it just kind of leaves me a little cold musically, despite seeming to have all the right elements. The Pogues do their thing fine. McGowan does his thing fine. I think it's just a little uninspired and by the numbers. One of these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cut you into little pieces. Oh, wait, no, that's different. Okay, well, let's move on to track 11. This is called Lullaby of London. song and an understated highlight on the album the pokes could portray loneliness incredibly well and reading between the lines of this song because again you have to read the lines of the song you can't just listen to them because you won't know what they are it Mm. it sounds like the narrator is an immigrant missing his home so after a night at the bar he sings his child to sleep with the assurance that his kid's life will be better than his own was it's really it's all very angela's ashes but it's it's a very pretty melody. It's an effective emotional hit. And a lot of the lyrics in this one, it, many of which you can actually make out, are really remarkable. This is it, it, it's not real big and obvious like, say, Thousands Are Sailing is. But once you pay close attention to it, it's really nice. I love this one, too. It's a lovely song. The music is stately and subtle. There's no clickety-clackety whiskey in the jar. Even, and this pains me, but the accordion meshes perfectly with the other instruments. It it even shimmers here. Accordions can do that, Ben. Hey, if the accordion can even win Ben over on this, (laughs) then... (laughs) And it's all in service of a beautiful melody. As usual, McGowan's pained and resigned and crackling delivery brings the most resonance from me. I don't even know if his mood fits the rest of the song, but it just works so well on its own. Sean, what about you? I, I won't bring uh, any any uh, discord here. I, I think this is like a real dark horse favorite on the album. This is really, really sweet. And just 
I, I, I think a really understated classic uh, from this album. It's not, you know, an obvious epic fairy tale of New York or thousands are sailing type song, but it is just such a sweet song uh, about a, a father singing his song to sleep. Um, and and I, I like Amanda's inference that it's probably, uh, you know, an immigrant uh, thinking about his own life and trying to promise his son that he'll have a better life than his. You know, once again, I'll, I'll just quote some of the lyrics because this these lines are so good. May the ghosts that howl around the house at night never keep you from your sleep. May they all sleep tight down in hell tonight or wherever they may be. Like, like that's just brilliance. That's, it's, that's, what a great verse. It's one of the best lines on the whole album. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the, the arrangement and the melody are fantastic. So, you know, this is... Uh, you know, if, if Fairy Tale of New York and Thousands Are Sailing are the standouts, this would be my hidden gem on the album. Okay, well, who's up for another medley? Me! <laughs> All right, track 12 is called The Battle March Medley. This is actually my favorite Pogues instrumental, and it was written by the new guy, Terry Woods. As far as I can tell, this is an entirely original composition, but it's possible he wove some traditional elements in as well. There's a real long buildup with the martial-sounding snare drum and very old-fashioned instrumentation. There seems to be a mandolin in there, and I believe we're also hearing a cittern, which is kind of like an oversized lute. About halfway through, it switches gears to this more energetic section. to include the part where they start yelling because like we said before it's not really a pogue song unless somebody is screaming bloody murder for no obvious reason <laughs> the way the the sections build into each other especially with the percussion reminds me quite a lot of 
Lark's Tongues and Aspect Part 1. No, that's not true at all. It's just that I'm at a little bit of a loss to explain why I like this so much. It's just a very pleasant and in- interesting instrumental track with lots of little details to keep your attention and several good melodic ideas. And it does all flow together really, really well. This is great. So since I didn't have all that much to say about the song, I thought this might be a good place to talk about authenticity. The Pogues draw quite a lot, obviously, from Irish folk music and culture, and they sing about Irish issues and experiences, but almost none of them were actually Irish. Shane McGowan was born in England, but his parents were Irish, and they moved back there for a while when he was a kid. But the only two who were actually born and raised in Ireland were Terry Woods and Phil Chevron, neither of whom were original members of the band. So that's two and a half people out of the seven who are on this album, and everyone else is fully English, and they were based in London. So in that respect, they actually remind me a lot of the band, capital T, capital B, the band, who were a bunch of Canadian boys playing Americana, and they eventually picked up a token American in Levon Helm. So the question is, is the Pogues music authentically Irish? Is the band's music authentically American? And in these cases, how much does that matter? You know, the band may have been mostly Canadian, but they listened to American music and they got it. And same with the Pogues, especially Shane McGowan among the English-born band members. They, they really identified with Ireland's music and culture and politics, and that's the musical world that they landed in, whether they were raised in it or not. And there is a line between appreciation and appropriation for sure, but I don't think the Pogues come anywhere near to crossing it. They're, they're drawing from a very rich musical well, and they do it respectfully and skillfully. So I'm not I'm not criticizing them for that at all, but I do think it's a really interesting facet of their history and it's worth talking about. It's authentically something, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's the other question. Authentic to whom or to what or to what idea or what experience? And then the yeah, question exactly. gets a lot broader. So, Sean, what do you think of this one? Uh, well, just because Amanda brought the band up, uh, I, I figure I should commandeer your platform just to issue a profound rest in peace, Ronnie Hawkins, uh, yeah. the Hawk, the inspiration for the band. He passed yeah. away not too long ago. What a great musician that guy was. So much fun to be around and helped assemble the band uh, into what it is today, uh, what it what it was. So, just uh, rest in peace, Ronnie Hawkins. But uh, no, uh, like again, this is a good um, this is a good medley. Great instrumentation. Love the yelling. Love the <laughs> the build up. Definitely, there is something about Irish identity and Irishness that is a lot more plastic than um, and, and flexible than a lot of other ethnic identities of European people and. Uh, I, I think it's partly because the Irish are such good storytellers mm-hmm. and have produced so much great music and literature and, and movies about the Irish diaspora that uh, it's been picked up by a lot of people that may only have a very tenuous connection to Ireland. You know, there's something to be said, certainly, for appropriating cultural identity that does not belong to you. Uh, but you know, I think Amanda's uh, analogy with the uh, the band was really good. You know, there is a connection to Ireland here, and this stuff is is so well done that it doesn't really matter what the actual connection was. 
this really encapsulates um, a specific experience and identity that, uh, um, you, you know, is it's, it's very respectful and it very feels authentic to me. Ben, do you like this medley? I like it fine. Uh, I like it. All right, let's that, move on. <laughs> <laughs> I like everything you all said about it, uh, though, Sean, it's pronounced diaspora. Oh, sorry. <laughs> musically this is fine for what it is it's like i've said it's not what makes the pogues stand out for me though i can appreciate that the pogues love this music just like what you said about richard thompson that it's it's not a blind spot for them it, it was it was a real passion for them and i appreciate that and amanda something you were saying before this discussion this is kind of proggy right yes <laughs> <laughs> the pogues are prog yeah. the pogues are not prog well I don't think they're <laughs> prog necessarily but it did make me think because uh, Ben I th- well I don't know I think a lot of the negative like uh, associations with prog or like the, the you know just the idea that like bands were trying to like make rock music that rose to the level of great classical music and it's filled with like you know shining flying purple wolf hounds and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. the, the thing is when I think of prog I think of it more as like you know multi-part songs that change and develop and try to like you know coalesce into something bigger and in that sense i think this is kind of a proggy song yeah i, I have nothing against that idea <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> I, like that. I was actually thinking about that with fairy tale of new york and thousands are sailing just in there in in the scope and the ambition of them they they share that in common with a lot of the best prog rock yeah so the pogues are prog i guess uh, yeah <laughs> is what is we're what saying <laughs> okay, well, that debate having been settled permanently, <laughs> let's move on to track 13. This is called Sit Down by the Fire. Sit down by the fire, I tell you a story, I send you away to fight. And I think it's a creepy way we're going to sleep and you wish you were out here instead. And it's in the mice in the wall, and it's in the wind in the well. Every night they pretend that all in the world on the way out of hell. Dad, I was here sleeping and working the street. The colonies are funny and down the marine. They live in the snoring and trees and they're gonna laugh at the top of the field. And it's in the rain, it's dust in the wind, the top of the window when no one is in. And if I ever see them, it's on a jet down the point of your head. They rip out your liver and dust your neck, they dust your head and they dust your chest. They give you the crown of the colic for jest. This is not their best work. Uh, The lyrics are good. It starts off, sit down by the fire, I'll tell you a story. And then Shane tells you all the horrible ghosts and ghouls that live in the walls and are going to devour your soul as soon as you close your eyes. But you can't understand any of that. And the instrumental arrangement isn't (laughs) really all that interesting. So there's really nothing to grab onto here. Sonically, it sounds a lot like Bottle of Smoke, only not as good. Honestly, does this need to be on the same album as Bottle of Smoke? I don't think it does. And if they left it off, then there would have been room for South Australia and the Battle March medley on the proper album. But whatever, water under the bridge. Uh, One thing I do really enjoy about this, though, is that McGowan's timing is all over the place. But the band does not miss a beat. They have set a rhythm and they are going to stick to it come hell or high water. So Shane comes in at the wrong time and everybody else says, yeah, just keep going. He'll catch up eventually. And he more or less does. And that's about <laughs> all there is. Ben, you like this one? I do. It's it's Okay, short. well, that's it. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Seeing a the theme here. 
It's short and sweet, and I like that. It's got good Pogues energy and a good level of Shane McGowan misanthropic grizzled grumblery. <laughs> Without McGowan, the Pogues are still the, the duded up house band at Epcot's New Ireland Pavilion. But McGowan's there, thank God. So this is a, a really fun song. Yeah, it, it, this is an okay song. It, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I, I would probably lean a bit closer to Amanda than Ben. It's it's probably the closest the album has to filler. And I hesitate to use that word about an album that is so good. But for me, this is a song that that really, if it had been left off or put on as a bonus track and then included South Australia in the Battle March medley, I, I, I thought that would have been the much better choice. One of these days, Sean. One of these days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so penultimate track. This is track 14, The Broad Majestic Shannon. The Greeks, there was whiskey and sunburn and tears in her cheeks. She sang me a song that was pure as the breeze, and her own leading up Glenavide. I sat for a while at the crescent finner where young lovers would meet when the flowers were in bloom. Heard the man coming from the fire at Chiron, the hearts in Tipperary, wherever they go. Take my hand and dry your tears, babe. Take my hand. Get your friends, babe There's no pain There's no more sorrow They are gone Gone in the years, babe It's another song about the Pogue's favorite subject, loneliness. This is all about wandering around a particular geographic area and missing someone. And yes, it uses the same hook as in Fairy Tale of New York. But it, that's honestly not a terribly original hook to begin with. So it's fine. Um, what it reminds me of is we've talked about the hippie noise on this podcast before. I think it was uh, Frank Zappa who started using that term to describe this one particular hook that's in around 50% of the folk rock songs from the 60s. Uh, you hear it at the beginning of I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better by the Birds. The Similarly, there's a hook that I hear constantly in old bluegrass songs, for example, at the beginning of Angel Band by the Stanley Brothers, that I've started thinking of as the hillbilly noise. And then you have this hook here in the Broad Majestic Shannon. That's one you hear reasonably often in old Irish songs. Maybe we'll call that the shamrock noise. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a perfectly fine song, but it's nowhere near the Pogue's best. Uh, I've read that it was actually written for the Clancy Brothers, but for some reason they never recorded it. I don't know the reason why or why the Pogue's went ahead and did it themselves, but it feels a little bit half-assed to me. I don't hate it, but it's nowhere near being a favorite. Sean, what do you think of the Broad Majestic Shannon? Uh, so this is about the river in Ireland. It's not about a majestic broad by the name of Shannon. <laughs> so let me just clear that up first of all. <laughs> this is a, a, a decent song, a good way to close the album. Um, I will point out that the last verse, it goes, So I walked as day was dawning, where small birds sang and leaves were falling, 
where we once watched the rowboats landing by the broad majestic Shannon. And if you think the song is kind of mediocre, you want it to turn it into a much better song, the way he says rowboats kind of makes it sound like the robots were landing <laughs> by the broad majestic <laughs> Shannon. So it becomes a science fiction epic. Oh, well, that changes everything. That's not already what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is actually a great live version on YouTube by uh, uh, Lim Clancy, which slows it down a bit. Uh, you can understand the lyrics a lot better. And uh, what I thought was a really sweet touch, the chorus, uh, he, he goes, take my hand and dry your tears, Shane. Take my hand, forget your fears, Shane. That I think is just really sweet touch. So it, that is actually a great performance to look up. I sat for a while at the cross of where young lovers would meet when the flowers were in bloom. Are the men coming home from the fair in Shinron? Their hearts in temporary, wherever they roam. Take my hand and dry your tears, Shane. Take my hand, forget your fears, Shane. There's no pain, there's no more sorrow, they're all gone, gone in the years, shame. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think this song works a lot better in this smaller, more traditional arrangement Although, and all, I really like that he changed that chorus to Take My Hands, Shane, although he makes it sound like Shane McGowan's dead, <laughs> <laughs> which he's not. <laughs> but again, this is one where it's, the, when you perform it in a traditional setting and with a traditional arrangement, it feels like it's 200 years old. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just, I mean, I feel like Liam Clancy sort of dug the song out from under the arrangement and... Yeah. Made it shine. So, Ben, what do you think of the Pogues version? I like it a lot. Um, I mean, I'm I'm with Amanda that, that some of the songs at the end of the album, are they're lesser. But I think this one is sweet. It, it starts with that fairy tale of New York melody, but I think it does interesting things with it. And McGowan, as usual, just kills it here. Uh, first off, he is so good at proselytizing for and mythologizing about a land that he never lived in or at least didn't live in much. So I'm kind of going with, with what you talked about authenticity before. Whether it's authentic or enough, I mean, he's good enough to work for the Irish Chamber of Commerce. Like they would say, sir, are you even Irish? And he'd go, well, no, but but hear me out. <laughs> he always sounds like a guy who accidentally stumbled into the recording session and just began mumbling into the microphone. But he ends up bringing such a rich layer of emotion to what might otherwise have been very pretty and professional, but conceptually by the numbers music. OK, well, that was the last substantial composition on the album, <laughs> but it is not the last track. Track 15 is called Worms. Come tumbling down your snout 
be merry, my friends, be merry. This is just a hilarious way to close the album. <laughs> it's an old song. We actually used to sing this when I was a kid, only the version I knew went the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. The forums on the Pogues official website lead me to believe that's Andrew Rankin singing, but that is the extent of my knowledge on how this came about and why they decided to put it on the album. It is just a goofy Pogues thing to do, and I am very glad it's here. Although I did have to take it off my iPod because it would come up on shuffle and scare the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> this one reminds me of Bugs by Pearl Jam, which we oh, talked yeah. about back in our Vitalogy episode. Yep. I got bugs. I got bugs in my room. Bugs in my bed. Bugs in my ears. It reminds me of a few songs. Uh, one of them is uh, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. Song yes. <laughs> in 1966 by yeah. Thurl Ravenscroft, although we all know it's actually James Earl Jones. So that's a fun association for me because I love that song. And on the other hand, as Rich astutely brought up, it also reminds me of Bugs by Pearl Jam uh, from Vitalogy. And I like Pearl Jam way less than I do the Grinch. And I don't mean the movie. I mean, I like them <laughs> less than the actual Grinch. There's not a ton going on here, but there's room on varied entertaining albums like this one for a track like this. And Sean, you have an essay prepared on worms, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So buckle up. It's a fun way to end the album. It's kind of like Her Majesty on Abbey Road by the Beatles. But instead of a sweet ditty about the queen, it's about the maggots that devour corpses in the grave. Same thing. Probably sums up the difference between the Pogues and the Beatles. <laughs> okay, we have fallen from grace with God. All right. <laughs> Thoroughly. Yes. So, Amanda, what are your closing thoughts on this album and the Pogues in general? I don't know any other bands that sound quite like the Pogues. And even they didn't sound like this for too long. Because after this album, Shane McGowan deteriorated significantly. As we mentioned before, he was one of the drunkest people in the entire world. And his singing and songwriting abilities dropped off sharply. I've spent the last couple of days listening to their later albums, and there are some decent songs in there, but the magic is gone. Especially the one that came right after this, Peace and Love, is just kind of a garbage fire. The one after that, Hell's Ditch, is pretty good. But they never hit this height again. And it, it, the situation actually got bad enough that the rest of the band fired him in 1991 in the middle of a tour and replaced him with Joe Strummer from The Clash for a while. So, I mean, they, they still had their punk cred. So, If I Should Fall From Grace With God kind of feels like lightning in a bottle. These very Irish-flavored songs performed with legit punk rock attitude made for just an incredible combination. It's, it's smart, funny, provocative, and just enormous fun. This is honestly one of the most fun albums I know, and the moments of deep, honest emotion just make it even better. I'm, I'm begging all of our listeners, if you haven't heard this album before and anything we've clipped in this episode appeals to you in the least... Take a good, hard listen to the entire album. It will brighten your whole day when it's not making you cry. Sean, what are your closing thoughts? Oh, well, yeah, this is, it's hard for me to be objective about this album. It is one of my favorites. And, and I think what makes it so great is that the band hit a concentrated peak of songwriting and performance 
and never truly recaptured again. It's it's like the Stone Roses, um, you know, in the sense that oh yeah, they 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 were able to channel this well of emotion and and power, and they just never tragically got that back again. Uh, and so, really, for me, it, it just it's just such a solid emotional masterpiece. That's that's really all I can say. And and I second Amanda. Just go listen to this album. I guarantee you, whatever you think of punk music or or Celtic music, you won't be disappointed. Um, just very quickly, uh, just to sort of cover the remaining bonus tracks that you'd find on the. Um, uh, the complete edition that's on the streaming services. Uh, there's a couple of instrumentals called Shane Bradley, which is kind of Irish Celtic flavored, and Sketches of Spain, which is similar to uh, Fiesta. It's it's uh, sort of Latin inspired. I assume that's somehow referencing Miles Davis, but I don't know Miles Davis well enough to know exactly how. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I assume at least the name is a reference. Yeah. There's two covers of traditional folk songs they did with the Dubliners, uh, the Irish Rover and the Mountain Dew, both which are a lot of fun. Uh, they're definitely worth a listen to, but you can sort of tell they, they should not have been put on the album. And I'm glad they didn't because yeah. uh, they, they wouldn't bring anything uh, that's not already captured on the album. It is nice that they included Mountain Dew as a bonus track, though, because that's the song that the the old man in the drunk tank was singing. Oh, yeah. Yep. yep. In Fairy Tale of New York. And Ben, what are your closing thoughts on how the accordion is the greatest of all instruments? <laughs> <laughs> The Pogues are a tight and talented band, and it's not easy to become that, and I don't want to take it for granted. But I find the whole skittle-dee-dee thing to be a little cliched and, <laughs> and unimaginative. And so I like the Pogues more when they when they meld their skittles and their diddles with other elements, like the Spanish horns on Fiesta uh, or the, the Turkish mystery on Turkish Song of the Damned. And that said, nearly every Pogue song features Shane McGowan, and I just think he's a marvel whose vocal interpretations grow more interesting every time I listen to him. I don't know if his whole drunken, slurred, gravelly, aspirational Irishman shtick was purely an invention, or if he just stepped up to the microphone the first time thinking he was going to sing the purest rendition of Danny Boy you've ever heard, and instead it came out like an extended burp, and that was it. That was what the guy could do. <laughs> but either way, it's crazy compelling and it's way more resonant than it has the right to be. And as long as he's up front, I am just fine with the Pogues giving us music that we can all dance to. Uh, it could be a, a real magical combination. Yeah. Speaking of authenticity, I don't think anything about Shane McGowan's Pogues persona is put on. I think that's just him. It, it's mm -hmm. fully real. I believe it. Okay, Amanda, what recommendations do you have for people who like this album and the Pogues? If you like this album, you absolutely must hear Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, and vice versa. That one isn't quite as consistent as this one, but it is a ton of fun, and Shane McGowan was sounding his absolute best on those two albums. Uh, and I know the Dropkick Murphys are in the same Celtic punk vein, but I've only listened to them a little bit and they didn't really grab me. So for non-Pogues bands, I'm going with Mumford & Sons. I think all the cool kids rejected them pretty thoroughly, but don't listen to the cool kids. They have terrible taste. <laughs> Mumford & Sons don't have the punk element and they're more British than Irish sounding, but it's a similar blend of traditional and modern elements. And their first two albums, Sinomore and Babel, are really great.
As the winter winds litter London with lonely hearts Oh, the warmth in your eyes swept me into your arms Was it love or fear of the cold that led us through the night? For every kiss your beauty trumped my doubt And my hand told Sean, you got anything to recommend? Yeah, I would uh, definitely second uh, the recommendation to listen to Rum Sod being the Lash. Uh, like Amanda said, it's it's a shaggier, looser album. Uh, you could tell the band was still really congealing into the force that would produce uh, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. Uh, for me, the standout track on that album, and again, even if you don't like the whole album, listen to this one, uh, Shane McGowan closes the album with uh, just a devastating version of Eric Bogle's famous anti-war song, and the band played Waltzing Matilda, yeah. uh, which is a song about the massacre of the um, Anzac forces at Gallipoli in the First World War. It's a brilliant devastating song it's got this incredibly spare arrangement but it never fails to to bring tears to my eyes um so definitely have a listen to to that album and especially that song so they collected the cripples the wounded and mine and they shipped us back home to australia the legless the armless, the blind and insane Those proud wounded heroes of Sofler And as our ship pulled in so circular key I looked at the place where me legs used to be and thank Christ, there was nobody waiting for me To grieve and to mourn and to pity And the band played waltzing Matilda As they carried us down the gangway but nobody cheered They just stood and stared And they turned their faces away Unfortunately, you know, as we've mentioned, with all of Shane McGowan's personal problems and the general churn of the band members, the Pogues just never really recorded anything quite as focused and brilliant as this album ever again. So I would I would say if you want to be a completist and get into their post uh, If I Should Fall From Grace With God albums, you can do so, but just be warned, you're you're going to have to clear aside a lot of dross. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the world of Irish folk music is so vast. Um, there, there are a few bands and and groups that we've mentioned on this uh, recording that uh, you should definitely check out. One that we haven't mentioned uh, is called Great Big Sea. Uh, this is a band from Newfoundland. And if you don't know anything about the maritime uh, musical tradition from the maritime provinces in Canada, it is incredibly Celtic inspired. Uh, there are a lot of Scottish, Gaelic, 
um, bands that have come out of there. Great Big C was big in the 90s in Canada. It's a ton of fun, uh, high energy band. Um, you know, uh, it's definitely worth a listen to, to, to their big hits and their albums. Um, I guarantee that I, I understand I've never been there, but I understand that if you pop into any random pub in St. John's, Newfoundland at any night of the week, you're guaranteed to hear some fantastic Gaelic folk music. Mm. So if you ever find yourself in Newfoundland, that's what you need to do. <laughs> I've got a smile on my face and I've got four balls around me. Got the sun in the sky, all the water surround me. Oh, you know, yeah, I win now. Sometimes I lose. I've been battered, but I never bruise. It's not so bad. And I say, wait, hey, hey, it's just an ordinary day, and it's all your state of mind. At the end of the day. And then I would just probably uh, close up by saying you can go out and check uh, the Dubliners, the Clancy Brothers, Tommy Maycomb. Um, They were they came up in the big folk rock uh, explosion of the 1960s. Uh, They've uh, each got approximately 6000 compilations and greatest hits albums. So I would almost just go on to Spotify or Apple Music and start listening. You're guaranteed to hear a few great Irish songs, but it's done in a traditional, uh, very much more restrained um, uh, style than the Pogue. So if you like the songs, you want to hear how some of these songs originally sounded, then I would definitely go listen to them. They're really fun. I like the Clancy Brothers. Do the Irish rovers count in their song about the unicorn, or is that just kind of often a novelty area? I don't know that specific song, but the Irish rovers definitely count. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, Ben, you got anything to recommend? Yeah, I mean, I liked all those recommendations, and uh, I've spent the whole episode ranting about how the Pogues without Shane McGowan just aren't all that interesting. But I'm going to do a 180 and recommend at least a little Pogues music that doesn't feature Shane McGowan. I'm still exploring their final two albums, uh, Waiting for Herb and Pogue Mahone. I trust, Sean, that there's a lot of dross on them, and I haven't heard all of them. But there is some tasteful and enjoyable music on there. Um, as I said before, I think that after they got rid of McGowan, they, they had to figure out some new tricks. In that context, I really like the song Tuesday Morning from the album Waiting for Herb, sung by the Pogue's aforementioned whistle player Spider Stacy. It's not anything original, but it's a really enjoyable and respectable 90s rock song, and it's worth checking out.
Tuesday morning. That's what comes right before Tuesday afternoon by the Moody Blues. <laughs> Coincidentally. Because the Pogues are Prague. And that is a wrap for the Pogues. Sean, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah. As always. Yeah, it was really fun to have you around. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Sean. All right. Next episode, our good friend and jam band aficionado Phil Maddox is coming at us with the episode he was born to host. He's going to be talking about the 1995 live album, A Live One by Fish. And I think this album smashes our length record. It is two hours and 10 minutes long. Oh, my God. <laughs> Meaning proportionally, the episode is going to be seven or eight hours long. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to guest host on that one. <laughs> so grab yourself a pint of Ben and Jerry's and get ready to zone out. <laughs> Roll credits. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy If I Should Fall From Grace With God and other albums by The Pogues at your local record store or at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing is by me, Rich Bennell, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Hug my horn.